Hey, before we get into this week's episode of The Culture, just a quick reminder that if you want to stay up to date with the show, you can follow it in your favourite podcast app. Just search for The Culture. All right, let's get into it. Hey there, I'm Osman Faruqi and this is The Culture, a weekly show about the latest in the world of pop culture, arts, entertainment and the whimsy of Wes Anderson. The filmmaker is back with his 10th feature film, The French Dispatch. It's his take on a fictional magazine reporting from France to an American audience in the 60s and 70s. The movie has all the hallmarks we've come to expect from Wes Anderson, including a massive cast, a very specific sense of colour and a lot of whimsy. So to talk about the film and the work of Wes Anderson more broadly, I'm joined by the wonderful Flick Ford, film critic and the host of Triple R's film show, Primal Screen. Flick, thank you for joining The Culture. Oh, thanks for having me, Oz. It's lovely to be back. We're here to talk about Wes Anderson's new film, The French Dispatch. It began as a holiday. Eager to escape a bright future on the Great Plains, Arthur Howitzer Jr. transformed the series of travelogue columns into The French Dispatch, a factual weekly report... It's his self-described love letter to journalism and, more specifically, a love letter to The New Yorker magazine. The French Dispatch is three things. Anthology, The New Yorker, and a French movie. It's also, I think, a good opportunity to talk about Wes more generally and and kind of everything he's contributed to film and how we feel about the filmography of Wes Anderson. First up, how do you feel about his work more generally? And I guess in the lead up to this movie coming out, his 10th film, how are you feeling? I feel like from the first year of film school, you're told about Wes, you know, and he's so iconic in that sense. So he's one of those directors where even if I'm not that fussed about the film or I'm not captured by the trailer, I still will be like, I'll probably see it at the cinema. I think he's got that sort of gravitas to him. For The French Dispatch, I wasn't like super hyped to see it, but I knew that I'd see it at the cinema. That's pretty much exactly how I feel. Like there are a couple of his movies that I really love a few that I really don't, and we're going to talk a bit more in detail about that later on in the conversation. But, yeah, he's also someone who, maybe because he has been divisive, I like to still watch the movies to know which side of the coin I'm on this time around. You know, I'm a journalist. I have mixed feelings about journalism. A lot of movies that are described as love letters to journalism kind of make my skin crawl (laughs) But I thought, like, let's 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 give this a go. Also, it's an interesting premise, isn't it? This idea of using a very visual medium to be celebrating the written word. Um, I think that's a it's a cool concept. Yeah, exactly. There's enough in the concept of this movie to make you want to check it out. I think so. I mean, let's talk about the movie. Yeah, um, let's get into it. It is a very clear and obvious, and, and Wes has been very upfront about this, a homage to The New Yorker. Wes says that he would read all the copies of it from his school library. He's released a book that is like a compendium of his favourite essays and articles from The New Yorker. He's obsessed with that particular kind of journalism. And, and in fact, the structure of the movie mirrors an edition of yeah. The New Yorker. It's an anthology. There's like the little short setting the scene interlude at the start. And then there's the three big stories that it tells. And 
often as the New Yorker ends, there's an obituary, just like in this movie. The concept of this movie, The French Dispatch, is it's a fictional newspaper. The newspaper is actually based in this town called Liberty in Kansas, and this is kind of the foreign bureau in this town in France called... Ennui sur Blasé. The city is ennui. The city isn't Paris. You know, it's sort of an imagined or amalgamated version of different aspects of, of, of old Paris. So you can say it's France, but it's a poetic France. It's a great name. It's a very Wes Anderson <laughs> name. There's a lot of... The, the naming in this movie is maybe one of my favourite things yeah. about it. That's <laughs> the name of the town. The magazine is about to close, and so it's printing one final issue, and it's containing the best stories of the whole magazine. So we kind of get these series of short films, essentially, that are, that are recreations of the stories in the magazine. Each part of the movie is kind of gathers together so many different inspirations, and some of them are French, and some of them come from the New Yorker magazine, and some of them... Uh, come from other places you know i the, the interesting thing to me was was when we were writing this we did approach it as not as just one experience but also as short stories mm-hmm. um and that's a pr- quite a different form um and it has different kind of interesting surprises along the way um, the first one is this tour of the town presented by, I think, my favourite named character, Herb St. Cesarac, <laughs> uh, who is played by Owen Wilson, absolutely insane name. And, and that kind of is a prelude to the movie and a bit of a scene setter. Then we get into the first big section, which is this story of an artist narrated by Tilda Swinton, who's giving a guest lecture. There's many layers yeah. operating here. Yeah. Uh, and it's about this violent and insane artist played by Benicio del Toro, uh, a new addition to the Anderson family, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, the second one is this recreation of student protests in, in France 68, uh, which kind of was famously written about by a real New Yorker journalist, Mavis Gallant. Uh, and that is a, a, a character sort of based on her, played by Francis McDormand. And also possibly based a bit on Wes himself. Interesting. Mm. All right, let's get into that. Yeah. Like, let's yeah. park that one for a second, but I want to I want to hear more about that. Uh, and she has this relationship with Timothy Chalamet, who is a French, you know, revolutionary student protester. And the final the final kind of big story in this is uh, this heist thriller featuring Jeffrey Wright, who is playing a very James Baldwin-esque Absolutely. character. Absolutely, yeah. So even just saying all that aloud, I'm like, there's a lot going on <laughs> in this film. And the cast is stacked, like beyond all those names yeah. I just mentioned. You've got Bill Murray, Elizabeth Moss, Jason Schwartzman, Adrian Brody, Leah Sadu, Liev Schreiber, Edward Norton, Willem Dafoe. Sisha Ronan. It's it's a lot going on. Yeah. As usual, Wes has assembled such an amazing group of actors. He had the usual cast of characters, big bunch of people, and I think he had most of the members of the Screen Actors Guild uh, in the movie. It's a pretty good roster of acting folks. It's as good as it gets. This troop of actors that he's worked with over the years, a lot of them come back, but there's new ones every time. There's all these celebrities, actors that you look up to. But what's cool is because it's Wes, everyone's bringing their AAA game. Top line thoughts, Flick. How did you feel about The French Dispatch? So I came into The French Dispatch having just watched uh, a real French film, uh, a French extremist film called uh, Tatan, which we actually talked about we did talk last about time. This, yeah. uh, so I was actually kind of looking forward to a softer 
um, ride this time around because <laughs> if you haven't watched a ton, it's bloody intense. So, yeah, I was excited to see Wes Anderson's French Dispatch. I was thinking it's kind of one of those things where I was like, I just want to look at some some pretty pictures, some pretty mm. people in this, you know, quaint French town. I was I was on board with it. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like it was one of those films where I came out of it thinking that was perfectly serviceable and there were some, you know, moments of delight within it. I think as I have had time away from it and I've allowed for it to to kind of mull, I've allowed myself to ruminate over mm. this film, I'm now picking out things that I didn't like, things that I do like about it, but it's sort of I'm not sure whether it will sustain as well as some of his other films have. Yeah, why do you think that is? What are the things that sort of stood out to you as being maybe less sustainable in in their enjoyment? Well, even hearing your synopsis, it's a bloody chaotic film. There is yeah. so much in this. There are so many big stars. There's a lot to cover. And, I mean, we're not even talking about what happens. You know, that's purely just the narrative. You could, mm. you could have a whole other hour talking about the visual design, the cinematography of this film. So I think if there's lots to unpack. I think it will continue to be a really um, a film when people are reflecting on Anderson, they come back to this one as something that couples so much of what defines him. I'm not sure that's a good thing, though. Mm. I, I feel like something that I felt like was missing from this film for me was heart. You know, you don't really get to know these characters that well. It's very surface level. There are moments of beauty. I think Jeffrey Wright's character is perhaps given the most amount of depth, perhaps uh, Benicio Del Toro's character as well. There's a bit more happening there. But you rush through it so quickly. It's really hard to have this feeling that you understood those characters and understood those those places. It, it is almost, like you said at the start, a quick flick through um, this very pretty magazine. Yeah, I feel like one of the biggest problems with this film, and it's something that, I think Wes Anderson has faced for the past decade is that it's almost a cliche to talk about parodies of Wes Anderson. And this movie, the concept of it, and even some of how it looks on screen kind of feels like a parody of what he's doing. (laughs) And I just don't think, but it's like not knowing, like it's not that he's trying to do it. It's just, I'm going to take my very distinctive aesthetic style. And it is a very pretty aesthetic style. The guy knows how to shoot movies. He knows how to edit movies. He knows how to work with amazing composers to, to to make something that looks and sounds very pretty. But what has always elevated, I think, the best of his films is, like you said, there's heart and there's story and there's character. And in these, I think from what you were talking about, the characters you connected with, that seems like they're your favourite stories. My favourite was far and away the Jeffrey Wright one. Mm. I thought that had both like a coherent narrative it seemed a bit longer than the others. Yeah. And I think that was just the right amount of time to sit with it. Whereas the the others, the Benicio del Toro, the artist one, the Francis McDormand, Timothy Chalamet one, I didn't love the stories within those and I just didn't feel like I was getting to know that world enough. And I wonder whether in trying to create this vision of a movie that is like a magazine, he kind of ended up detracting from what could have been potentially three like quite interesting movies on their own. Yeah, that's a really good point actually. And I think that when I actually think about The New Yorker, and I know this isn't directly in The New Yorker but it's you know heavily influenced enough to be that, 
I think that the pleasure in reading those articles is in the long form nature of them, in which you do get a good, clear sense of the story, the characters within those. So yeah, it's in almost it's almost in contrast to that, where there's so much. Um, it's a very light footed film, mm. and it, it covers a lot of ground. I think the staging in this way allows for that, hmm. but I'm not sure whether all audiences will be as swept up in it. Um, I think the Wes fans will always be Wes fans, though, right? Up next, we're going to take a look at what the French Dispatch has to say about the glory days of journalism. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. The City of London in Andrew O'Hagan's latest novel is crumbling. But don't mistake this for pessimism. Instead, the author insists it's a necessary process for a better future. Change doesn't just happen because it's time for a change. Change has to be forced. We live in the end not in countries that are settled places. They're just imagined communities. I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's Read This, I sit down with Andrew O'Hagan to discuss his latest, Caledonian Road. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The other thing that interested me about the movie, as I said at the start, was this idea of it being like a love letter to journalism. And I think what surprised me the most was like how little journalism there was in this movie. (laughs) And I mean, on one hand, there's this element of like just recoiling at what the print magazine industry used to be like in the 60s and 70s, where writers would get paid six-figure sums to write one 4,000-word story a year and have their expenses paid as they travelled around. All of that was very like whimsical and very fun. There's only really one story in this that is about a journalist doing journalism as opposed to recounting a story or just living it, and that is the Francis McDormand mm. one. And that is the one I was in many ways interested to see the most because it is based on these really well-known pieces in The New Yorker about what it was like in Paris in May 1968. And it left me feeling really flat. And, Mm. like, Wes is not a political director and I wasn't expecting some sort of polemic, but there was two things about it that really frustrated me. One was just the level of, like, patronizing dismissal of what this moment in history was about. And it's like, how can you say that this is a love letter to The New Yorker and a love letter to journalism when you aren't really capturing why someone would want to write about this? I think politics Mm. for Wes Anderson always are an aesthetic rather than a, a, you know, grounded in, in a reality in a, in a truth, and that's really frustrating. And I think that's something that, you know, we talk about why we were interested to see the French Dispatch. You know, I was introduced to Wes from film school, and I think as I've gotten older I have looked for films that maybe tap into that in a deeper way, and I, I don't know. He, he doesn't always he doesn't go there, and it's frustrating, and especially when people bring up criticisms of his work, which I'm sure we'll get into later, but... Yeah, that is a frustrating thing to see this rich material that is there and, like you said, is based on real events but just keeping it at a surface level. Yeah, and the Grand Budapest Hotel had a similar thing, though I didn't find it quite as grating because I 
didn't really just generally enjoy that movie, where there's these characters that are sort of stand-ins for the Nazis in the 30s. And it's a little bit disconcerting how sort of, again, like whimsical they are. Like they're really bad. They're clearly like Nazis, Nazi stand-ins, and they're just sort of like silly. Yeah, I actually found that a lot more palatable because it had a subversive element to it. You know, they've got the ZZ instead of the SS and I don't know. There was a, I thought that that was a little bit more grounded and there did seem to be something kind of radical or at least edging towards radical in that, whereas I don't think this is actually having something radical and then stripping it of that, really. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good way of putting it. I I mean, I feel like I, when I was thinking about what I really liked about the movie, I liked the runtime. Um, (laughs) That is such uh, a burn. Yeah, I don't... I mean, I mean that in two ways. I mean that, you know, an hour and 45 minutes, I don't think I could have done more of this movie. But I also, you don't see that many sort of like big budget movies sticking to that time frame. Yeah. And I do like the attempt to make something that is trying to be fun, that is also digestible, right? When so much of cinema is so long and so big and so thematic and so exhausting in what it's trying to grapple with, that was another thing that I was, like, drawn to about this movie. It's an hour and 45 minutes and it seems kind of fun. And even if I don't love it at the end of it, I'm not going to think, oh, my God, what a waste of time and money. Yeah. But I did also, (laughs) like, I don't want to just say the only good thing about this movie (laughs) is the runtime. Like all Wes movies, the casting's incredible. Yeah. And the performances are very good. Like mm. even the, the the stories that I don't love, it's not because the actors are putting their all into it. Yeah. And even I some... was like, are they even getting paid for it? I think they're just having so much fun. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And Bill Murray, who plays the editor of the of the French Dispatch, he's not in it that much, but he's giving it his all. Um, Fisher Stevens, who we all have gotten used to from being back on Succession. Yes. He's in it. He's having a great time. Yeah. <laughs> um, Adrian Brody going head to head with Benicio yeah. is, is really, really good. And I think maybe that's another element as to why I might have ended up feeling a little bit flat is I love all of these people and I've seen them do great things in this kind of style. And just when you, the idea of them being all together, so exciting. Yeah. But maybe it's because, like we said, you don't quite get enough time to spend with them. Yeah. And so maybe, even though the runtime is great and digestible, maybe a longer film would have allowed for us to kind of sink more into those characters. Uh, similar to you, I think the cast is exceptional. And the performances are outstanding. But I think there's also something really exciting happening on a formal level. Mm. Um, You know, it is a very inventive and a very playful um, film. You have these sudden shifts from black and white to colour that I, I, you know, the film nerd in me did get into. (laughs) Um, There's there's a few scenes where they use this fake freeze um, and you can actually see that the actors are straining to hold those poses and there's drinks that are almost about to tip over and things are moving in those freeze frames. Um, I loved all that textuality of it and the fact that it is real and part of me, you know part of it is that easter eggs almost that get through these lo- lovely little moments on screen where you're like how did they make that um and that's always been a part of Wes's work this you know sometimes there'll be handwritten notes or the type font is a huge part of Wes Anderson's um, filmography. Uh, there's a beautiful animation sequence in this through a car chase, and I think maybe they just did this because it would have been really expensive to do that car <laughs> chase. Who knows? But I think it works well. It adds a bit of playfulness and it's believable because you're like, yeah, of course, you'd have a cartoon section within hmm. within the magazine. And, yeah, I, I think those little things, he's really flexing 
you know, classic wares in this film. So that's those elements. People, if you love them, you'll still love them. And I can enjoy those things on one hand, but then also not be that into the narrative. The animation thing is a, is a good thing to to um, shout out, actually. Like, I really enjoyed that as well. I think he does he does that kind of um, what would traditionally be like a higher budget thing in a normal film. He tends to subvert it and either does something that is so obviously like on a green screen, but it's kind of fun, yeah. or in this case he animates it. <laughs> and the animation style reminded me a lot of Tintin, yes. which was a lot of fun as well and we're in that kind of like heist adventure bit at that moment. Yeah. And I think you're right. Like I guess as I hear you talk about this, as we're having this conversation, and I think about the movie more generally, like I didn't love it clearly, but I'm not mad that it exists. And I I think this sometimes with, with directors and artists like Wes Anderson, I'm glad that they're at a point in their career where they've had success, where they can just make things like this and they're just able to execute a vision that is clearly theirs. Mm. And it might not always land, but maybe they create you know, a new distinctive style of doing something and it gets picked up by other people. Like you think about all the French New Wave stuff that he was influenced by mm. and now he's trying to like pass on other sort of techniques. Like yeah. that, that's a worthwhile endeavour. And there are references to Goddard in this film as well. So there's, yeah, there's these little things that you can pick up on. I, I suppose something that I think about, the French Dispatch does seem as though it's some something of a graduation from his other films. I think that reflecting on his filmography, there were things where I was like, I don't love this about his work. And I think he addresses some of those in the French Dispatch, you know, he does cover topics, um, you know, pretty heavy topics like racism, homophobia, mental illness, political unrest. Unfortunately, I think it does often fall into that trap of being, you know, that signature lightness that he has. Um, and I think ultimately, you know, the visual design takes mm. precedence over politics, unfortunately. But I think that he also has thought a bit more about his female characters. He's actually got a, a character There's a number of, of them this time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I think he's thought a bit more about that. I agree with that point you made earlier about the female journalist and, you know, needing to sleep with sources. In fact, she's not the only one, the Tilda Swinton character. You know, th- there's lots of female characters where they are defined still in relationship to the male characters. But on the whole, at least they get more dialogue. You mentioned before that you think that maybe it's a little bit autobiographical, one mm. of the stories. Tell me about that. Yeah. So I suppose uh, a few characters stood out for me. Um, I think... Uh, Chalamet's character of this young um, political activist plays into how Wes kind of talks a bit about himself of being, you know, he was a philosophy grad, maybe no surprises there. And I think that kind of plays into to that characterization. But also uh, Bill Murray's character of um, Arthur Howitzer Jr. This idea of his, so Wes Anderson as the editor of these actors and creatives who come into his films, he directs them, but he allows for them to tell their story their way. And I think that the film <laughs> is really about him and his relationship in that creative process with these actors, with these cinematographers, with these, you know, all these people who have these ideas and he's able to shepherd them into being. That's so interesting because I hadn't thought about the the wes of it all in mm. terms of the characterization, but then... I'm realising now that the Timothy Chalamet character, this student who has a affair with a much older woman, 
is basically the conceit of Rushmore, one of Wes's yeah. first films, yeah. where he's very openly saying that that's kind of biographical as well, where he was this, you know, young, brash student who wanted to shake up the system, who fell in love with an older woman. There's parallels to some yeah. of his early work, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Something that stood out for me for the French Dispatch is it has a very childlike quality and that's kind of really well communicated through the cinematography, which almost has this picture book flatness to it. And um, he also achieves that through a bit of like um, lateral dolly shots and things like that where you really get a sense of space Hmm. in his films. There's always this repetition of childhood unrest and, uh, you know, this idea of his films as if they're told from the perspective of a 12-year-old boy, you know. And, yeah, I think that that particular story within French Dispatch fits into that perfectly. But then we also have people at the end of their life and how how they're dealing with that sense of loneliness and wishing that they were children again. So it's, yeah, it's got a lot of those signature styles and characters from that we come to expect from Wes Anderson films. After the break, it's time to take a deeper dive into Wes Anderson's filmography. From the Saturday paper comes The Food, a free weekly newsletter featuring curated recipes from some of the country's leading chefs, including Andrew McConnell, Otama Carey, David Moyle, and Karen Martini. Cook what they cook by subscribing today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. There are very few characters in his films who are, like, bad people. Like, there's the ones who are, like, cartoonishly, like, evil villains. But almost everyone else, even if they're on the bad side temporarily, they're, like, trying their best. They think that what they're doing is right and they eventually come to some realisation that it's probably not. And there's something, I don't know, I think it's, like, maybe too optimistic and naive, but there is something... I guess, sweet about wanting to see the best in people and thinking that, you know, ultimately good and love can triumph. Well, sweetness is used as both a compliment and a criticism of Wes Anderson's work. People who find him too saccharine um, will comment on that. But there's also something kind of delightful about these universes that he creates in which they seem, uh, even with divorce, racism, homophobia... Um, sometimes war, they are still relatively safe spaces because the playfulness always overrides any real threat. And that's kind of a fascinating concept when probably a lot of us are weary from very extreme cinema or or just general life, you know, and there's a comfort in that. There is comfort in that, but he's also a pretty divisive director. And like we've both said, we don't necessarily love all of his films. Let's talk about what we don't like as much. Is there something across his work that you find particularly grating? I suppose the first thing that stands out to me is this repetition of characters, predominantly straight, white, privileged characters. He does have exist almost entirely in that world. He said before that he um, would find it difficult to write a female character, which is interesting from coming from a, a man who's written and directed a film about talking dogs, but it's just <laughs> it's Talk- curious to me. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, you can say on one hand, like, 
obviously, and we, we talked about this with the French Dispatch and Rushmore, a lot of his characters are avatars of himself. And sure, that's his experience and he wants to explore it and he's absolutely allowed to do that. But it's not as though he doesn't have female characters. And traditionally, they've not been very three-dimensional. They're often used as objects of, you know, catalysts for what happens to the male protagonist or they're kind of caricatures. And so he's trying to have it both ways. He's like, I'm not really good at it. I don't really want to do it. You are doing it. You're doing Mm -hmm. it pretty badly. And, like, I love the point that you just made. You can write about animated dogs in a made-up Japanese island if you can get into their headspace. (laughs) But also, like, talk to some women or, like, get some women in your writing room. Yeah, and also it's kind of frustrating and I think he does try. (laughs) You know, there are female characters and I'm sure you'll have lots of people writing in being like, but what about this person? So they're often given power. People love to write into this show. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, they're given power or they're given agency or they're given control and we see that in The French Dispatch. We see that in lots of these other films. But they're often presented as muses or they're mysterious in some way. They're unknowable. And that is an othering of women that is very frustrating. Um, And they're nearly always defined in relationship to the male characters. And and I just find that it's a frustrating thing. I think if, you know, if if cinema acts as a mirror, it's fine if you're a straight white dude, but everyone outside of that, it's it's sometimes uncomfortable viewing or frustrating viewing. I I think frustrating is exactly how I felt. Like I think even the French Dispatch, which had more interesting women characters than his other movies. As you pointed out, the two most prominent ones, Tilda Swinton and Frances McDormand, are both journalist characters that sleep with their protagonists, which and, is just, yeah. you know, this this trope that has plagued <laughs> women who dare to do journalism, right? Yeah. I think similar to politics, women are used as these props to make a lot of the male characters in Wes Anderson's films more interesting. Um, I suppose the other thing is that... Um, other cultures are often performing as this backdrop and aesthetic in Wes Anderson films. Um, you know, he's often been accused of fetishising um, Asian culture, particularly and this idea of, like, the mystic of the Orient. It does lead to this real weird distortion and exaggeration of cultures. So we see that on his in his films and it's just this perpetuation, sometimes in very subtle ways, of this colonial myth of this like backwards east and that's going to get saved by the west and there's so many white saviors in Wes Anderson's work you know Isle of Dogs should we I feel like Let's, that's like, a I mean, great example I of it. found that so perplexing because I thought it was it was a caricature of Japanese culture in a really bad way yeah it isn't it isn't great I think one of the most offensive decisions and creative decision that was made was to translate the dog's barks to English, but not to extend that same courtesy to the Japanese-speaking characters. Mm. Um, The Japanese characters are othered in a film that's set in their own country. And there's also this rather obvious reference to a stereotype about Asian people um, eating dogs, you know, and I don't think that's too much of a stretch to say that it's really uncomfortable that he returns to that Mm. in this film. Um, And it also really underscores this animal cruelty in Japan. I mean, like, Australia has its own animal cruelty in lots of other ways we want to talk about. America has animal cruelty, yeah. Precisely. And Tracy, who is this, you know, figure at the centre of Isle of Dogs, acts as a literal white saviour who speaks over the Japanese characters. I mean, I just think it's a bit of a a mess. 
I, yeah, look, I couldn't agree more. Like, that's a movie that I tried to expunge from my memory. I, I guess, you know, the one positive thing to say is that his attempt to explore race in the French Dispatch is a bit more nuanced. Yeah. And it's, you know, working with someone like Jeffrey Wright and trying to, like, I mean, <laughs> just rewind the tape for a second. If you told me a few years ago, like after Isle of Dogs came out, that Wes Anderson is going to be writing a James Baldwin-esque character... <laughs> I would have, like, had a heart attack. Like, no, someone take this man's money and his camera away. This cannot work. And I think because he tries not to be ham-fisted about it and and Jeffrey Wright is just given the time to, like, do that performance and that's really what's amazing, that's really good. So maybe he's learned some lessons from my yeah, old dogs. Yeah, I think he has. And, you know, I suppose, you know, sometimes I wonder whether he's, he's presenting these characters and these stories as a way to critique them. You know, you could say in Royal Tenenbaums when Gene Hackman is throwing all of these racialized abuse at Danny Glover, you could say they're presenting him, it's not, it's not meant to be celebrated. I just don't think... In especially in those early films, that it's critiqued enough. He doesn't mm. interrogate it, he just presents it. And ultimately, Gene Hackman's character, you do have a huge amount of empathy for. So, And yeah. I look, it's it's an interesting debate around the Darjeeling Limited as well. Mm, and it's, yeah. a, it's a movie that I've got mixed feelings to. I think it's like a very beautifully shot movie. I think the cast, again, are great. And this story also, again, sort of semi-autobiographical, like these young men struggling with their relationship to their dad and going on a trip to the East, in this case, any to sort out their own feelings. Yes, it's got issues because, again, the the East, <laughs> in this instance, India, is solely used as a way for these, like, rich, annoying white guys to find themselves. Uh, the, the, they also, the Indian characters, again, don't exactly, get Exactly, exactly, no, and... And the way that the Indian characters are disposable is particularly grating. But I do think that movie, there are more signs that you're not supposed to like these guys and the way they treat India. And that was kind of how I took that movie in. I wonder, like, maybe it's too generous a reading because ultimately with satire, like, if your audience doesn't get it, I don't think you can just wave your hands and say, it's satire, guys, it's not my fault. If you're (laughs) ultimately wanting the audience to sympathise with these guys, ultimately through what they've gone through, the bits that you're saying are satire are not doing enough to outweigh that. But maybe it's just because I want to justify the fact I quite like watching that movie. I think it's quite (laughs) beautiful to look at. It's okay to like it. (laughs) Thank you, Flick. Maybe to wrap up the convo, we can talk about some of the ways that Wes's style has impacted culture. It's very funny when you when you look up like impacts Wes Anderson has had, you get, you know, these Instagram accounts like accidental Wes Anderson or <laughs> there's a there's an article in Broadsheet right now, like five places you can eat that remind you of a Wes Anderson thing. <laughs> and that's where I think the parody has kind of come into it a bit. It's kind of become a bit silly now, like saying that so Wes Anderson means something completely disconnected from cinema. But he has left a bit of a mark on cinema. Absolutely. Um, there are you know, a bunch of specific films and and even particular directors, I think, that are in the same kind of tradition that he's carved out. Totally. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Like Napoleon Dynamite has that same kind of awkwardness. Um, the, the dialogue delivery as well is really similar to a Wes Anderson film. And even that kind of time that it occupies, that fashion time, mm. um, you know, so many characters in Wes Anderson films, they wear a uniform of sorts. And it's not, to, you know, sometimes that's literally a uniform, but often it's just the same 
clothes that you can basically create a style book for, um, which is really interesting. Mm. And I think, you know, he's had his work has had a huge impact as well on the advertising world. He's done lots of different advertising campaigns uh, for like SoftBank. He's done one for Stella Artois. It, it seems an obvious pairing, really, with the visual design that he's created and then his commercial work, but also lots of other film work as well. Yeah, the the kind of director that I think of when I think of Wes Anderson, it might be a weird one to say, Sophia Coppola. Like, I mean, there's a family connection there. Her cousin, Jason Schwartzman, has been in a lot of Wes Anderson movies. Yeah, from the uh, beginning as Yeah, well. Ro- Roman Coppola was one of the co-writers of this movie. And... You know, I think the subjects Sofia Coppola tackles are quite different, but the use of colour palettes I think are very similar and the focus on certain kinds of stories, even if the perspectives are different, but it's a particular milieu. Yeah, and they occupy both in that emotional sense of of what is preoccupying their characters and and their emotional health, but but and and sometimes into the darker topics of that they both their films cover. But also in terms of this kind of white privilege as well that comes through and not necessarily, you know, they both often suffer that same criticism about their work of style over substance. And I think in some ways they both push against that. Flick, what a great way to sum it up. Uh, Thank you for talking to me about The French Dispatch and Wes Anderson. Thanks, Oz. The Culture is a weekly show from Schwartz Media. It's produced by Bez Zoda and Atticus Basto. Our editor-in-chief is Eric Jensen, and our theme music is by Hermitude. You can follow us on Instagram, we're at theculture.pod. I'm Osman Faruqi, and see you next week for our final episode of the year. It's a very special one. It's been years in the making. 